You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating, episode 31 with Molly Fennig. Molly is pursuing her PhD in clinical psychology at Washington University in St. Louis with a specialization in eating disorders. She is the author of the novel Starvation, which won a 2021 Independent Press Award and a 2021 Reader's Favorite Award. Talks about males and eating disorders. Molly has been published in various literary presses and multiple scientific journals. And naturally, we are talking about research. So we so often hear people talk about, oh, well, research shows that. And part of our conversation is unpacking, well, first of all, what does that mean? And second of all, just because someone says that doesn't necessarily mean much. So how do we become a better critical thinker when we hear the term research shows, when you are exposed to some research, whether or not you're actually reading through all of it, just for you to understand in a way that fosters independent and critical thinking. All right, let's jump right in. Thank you so much, Molly, for joining us today. I'm excited about this conversation. I mean, we've spoke offline why it's so important to talk about research. And even though it might sound boring, it's totally not. But before we jump into that, maybe can you just give us a little bit of a background? Who are you? What's some of the work that you do? Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to talk about this. So I'm Molly Fennig. Um, I'm currently a first-year graduate student at Washington University in St. Louis. I'm getting my PhD in clinical psych. Before that, I did a postdoc year at the University of Minnesota on eating disorder research. And before that, was at Swarthmore College for a neuroscience major. Right now, uh, working at WashU, my lab is on eating disorder research and especially developing what we call like evidence-based treatments, which I'm sure we'll go into a little bit, but evidence-based treatments for eating disorders and especially utilizing digital technology to increase reach and efficacy and kind of just create better treatments. And I also have a therapy dog, Peach, who is training to be an eating disorder research expert as well, even though oh, she's that's cool. Not. Wait, what's Peach's <laughs> role as a therapy, a eating disorder therapy dog expert? Wait, how do you say that? <laughs> no, it's, it's a joke. <laughs> um, she's going to be going and seeing clients with me. So being in the therapy room with me, and she also helps a little bit with outreach about you know mental health in general, decreasing stigma. So we do events and visits and all kinds of things like that. Oh, that is cool. Yeah. So maybe just because you've mentioned the term evidence-based, can we start there? Like, What does evidence-based treatment even mean? a great question. Basically, if a intervention is evidence-based, that means there is research supporting that it is effective. How much research is needed to determine that really depends. And so there are groups that will make lists of like, yes, this intervention has enough evidence, this one doesn't, but that can be kind of arbitrary. The other thing is modalities or treatment types just aren't as good for studying because they may not have what we like a manual. So that means that it might vary a lot person to person. So it's hard to tell 
basically it's hard to control for variables, which means it's hard to tell what's the outcome of the therapy versus just individual difference in how the therapy is being given. But basically evidence-based just means that we have research and the research shows that it's effective, usually more effective than either a wait list or another treatment or something like that. So let's break down even just the term research because people use it all the time. Research shows this is research backed. I mean, like think about even in our own language, how we say that just to prove our point. But I don't know about everyone, but what is implied when someone says research shows? So I think the main implication is that research has this one overarching thought process or like there's one conclusion. And for most of research, there are papers with conflicting theories and conflicting conclusions. And when people say research shows, it's not specific enough. So really what we need to say is which studies are showing this because studies are limited by what population they're looking at and what methods they used. And did they have any controls to make sure that we can't attribute any changes to other variables? I think it's less problematic to say research shows when we have what we call like systematic reviews or meta-analyses where we're looking at lots and lots of papers and looking at over these 20, 30 papers, kind of what is the consensus. But most of the time when people are saying research shows, they're not citing a meta-analysis. They're citing maybe one paper or something that they've heard from other people. Right. So this sort of goes into the intricacies of how to read research. And I mean, you're in a research lab, so you'll look at every word, but for the rest of us, we're like, yeah, well, what's the abstract? Maybe I'll read that. So how do we make sure that the research that we're receiving is actually something that's accurate information, or is this inaccurate information? Is there just more data that we need to collect? How do I actually know what I'm looking at? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing, which I think they teach us in like second grade is like, what is your source, right? So um, there are are journals that are... Which school did you go to in second grade? Wow. That's why you're you're in a research lab. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) So we have journals that are called peer-reviewed. So in order for them to be published, other scientists have to look at it and offer feedback to make it better and ultimately say, yes, this has merit. This should be published. There aren't any glaring methodological flaws. So looking for peer-reviewed journals is a, a first step, I think. A second step in looking at the research is to look at, I think one of the first things I look at is the sample. So, you know, if a lot of studies for convenience, they'll look at college students because if the, the research lab is on the college campus, it's easy to recruit people. But if you're doing research with college students, you can't necessarily generalize to a greater population, to kids, older folks, even non-college educated individuals. So look at the population and think like, is this something that we can generalize The other thing is looking at the type of research. So there's qualitative and quantitative research. And qualitative, we're looking at more how do people describe experiences. And quantitative, a lot of times we're trying to control for factors to get at kind of causality and correlation, all these words that we hear a lot, I think, in research. But if you have a qualitative study, you can't necessarily infer causation. Um, And if you have a quantitative study, you can't say anything outside of the questions that you've asked. So if you ask somebody, is your favorite color red or blue? 
you can't say anything about people's favorite color being yellow. So those are kind of some differences there. But I think learning to read research is really a skill that you have to learn with practice. And unfortunately, not everyone is taught how to do it. And I think it's also okay to know that you don't know how to do it. And hopefully the goal of the scientific community is to be better at teaching what we call like the lay public, what the science means and how to interpret it. Yeah. Well, just in terms of the qualitative versus quantitative, what does that actually look like? Yeah. So qualitative research, a lot of times is done with interviews. So we're asking people to describe things and looking at patterns of word choice or themes and quantitative is probably what more people are familiar with, you know, even like a survey, like how happy are you? One to five. Um, That's quantitative. So looking at more numbers based where we can do statistics and things like that. That's kind of the difference in how they look. So this is making me think that it's really tricky because especially even some of the questions that you're asking, it's like, well, that's subjective response. I can say five, but really maybe somebody else might have the same exact experience and say three. I mean, I'm sure this is a barrier to accurate information, but how do you go about publishing research if it's subjective like that? Yeah. And I think that's one of the problems we get with people interpreting the research is thinking like, because it has numbers to it, therefore it's like an objective truth. And I think the more you you get into research, the more you realize, no, there's a lot of nuance and a lot of opportunity for like self-reporting bias or just different experiences. I don't think we have a good answer for how to control for that. I think, you know, we try to use what we call like validated measures where we have the same questionnaires and we use them across contexts and we show that they correlate with other constructs we think should they should correlate with. But it's hard because then you have to have something to compare it to. And how do you know that thing you're comparing it to is a good measure itself? Yeah, I think if you figure that out, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just, I said this before, I think it is a little bit of a dramatic term, but I think that using even the phrase research shows is so dangerous because it's so vague. And even if there is real research to back up this claim, you can just sort of throw it out there and people are like, oh, well, it's research backed and therefore there must be something to it. But first of all, we don't really know what that means. Like somebody can say it and they're just reading like some sort of research study that doesn't have an ample sample size or population or it isn't peer reviewed. It's not a meta-analysis, so it's not like a compilation. It's just sort of one person doing one thing. And then we've heard so many issues with some research being backed by specific companies or corporations. And then there's just like a whole bunch of data that's probably skewed. And so even using the term research sometimes can, I don't know, it feels like it can backfire. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I could run a study right now where I ask just peach, what's her favorite treat? And I can say, you know, research shows that dogs like this treat better. (laughs) And that would be true. Like I did a study, but I, like you said, there's not, that sample size isn't there. It's only one, one dog and it's obviously biased and not representative of all dogs. So I think, 
again, getting back into, okay, if we're saying the research shows, what is the research we're looking at? What are the limitations of that study? And therefore, what is the limitation of that conclusion that we're drawing? So you're saying that even the conclusion that we draw based on the conclusion of the researchers will still, to a certain extent, be kind of subjective is, do I feel like this is enough to prove their point? Yeah. I mean, even like you were saying with a scale, like just because everybody says they're five out of five on happiness, what does that mean? Like we still have to make a conclusion from those numbers and that's always going to be not fully objective because it can't be. Yeah. Well, something that you said before is something that like just sort of lights a fire in me is that I'm trained analytically. And so it's not really something that's been studied a lot in the same way that CBT or more behavioral sciences have been, because it's not manualized. It is extremely individualized. It's based on very different theoretical orientation. And when people say the gold standard for eating disorder treatment is CBT, well, yeah, that's because it's manualized and researchable. And it doesn't mean that any other sort of way of approaching therapy is ineffective. In fact, it's actually not true. But in terms of researching it, yeah, well, that's really tricky. How do you research someone's therapy process? I mean, I don't even know. Yeah, and I think the thing that, I didn't even realize until a class I took last semester is that CBT was literally built to be the researched therapy. Like not only is it good at being researched, but they literally built it to be the comparison group. So no wonder it's easy to study, but also CBT has this, our clinical director says like CBT eats everything. So once mindfulness became popular, CBT suddenly incorporates mindfulness. So if it incorporates all these things of all these other modalities, like, no wonder it's going to work. It has everything in it. Yeah. I was thinking about this the other day because I'm right now practicing for another talk I'm giving. And one of the foundations of my talk is to talk about the idea of a working alliance in the therapeutic relationship and transference, counter-transference. So some of these terms have been used in the clinical world as part of our language. And that's just sort of what happens, thankfully, to a certain extent, but also that's a very, very analytic idea. And so, yes, if we adopt a little bit of this and a little bit of this, then it's almost like, okay, the research can't be wrong. And then when we read the research, well, we just have to be critical thinkers. We have to see what we're looking at, which is is obviously really difficult to do because it takes a lot of work. Yeah. And I think, I think CBT can make it great. I mean, it works for a lot of people. And I also think there's this balance between we want what we're doing to be evidence-based, but then also some of the things that we do can't really be studied in the same way. So how do we balance that? And I think that's something we talk about a lot in training is balancing those two things. Yeah. Which is potentially where a more qualitative study might be effective in this capacity because we aren't measuring, I don't know, blood samples. So something that comes up very often in this work is the idea of weight loss versus anti-diet culture that anti-diet culture clinicians, if you will, are pointing out how the studies revolving around weight loss are either inaccurate to a certain extent or just don't have enough information or backed by some people who needed their theories to be proven. And so to a certain extent, some of these weight loss studies are measurable. So we're taking people who potentially have medical issues and then we're inserting weight loss and then we're getting numbers. So it, it's, it is a little different from therapy, but this is where, and this is where I sort of get caught in the middle. I'm like, well, I don't know. Some of that sounds cool and right, but 
somebody here isn't, right? I'm not saying it's a zero-sum game, but in terms of specifically the science and research around weight loss versus the other side, how do you start to make sense of this? Yeah, this is really interesting. Um, my We call her my lab twin. She's the same a first year in my lab. And I um, worked on this book chapter on... You have a lot of people who are going to go through weight loss and how do we make sure that we're not increasing eating disorder risk for them? And I think like you, it's something that I struggle with. Like some people lose weight and they do a lot better medically. And also a lot of people don't need to lose weight and they're, you know, how do we combat that bias? But with this book chapter and looking at kind of the research that's out there, it seems like the studies that do best for weight loss and also don't increase eating disorder risk share a lot in common with what we do for eating disorder treatment. So we have tracking what people are eating. We have, you know, so being mindful of kind of what we're doing and setting goals so that we can get to those goals through tracking, having accountabilities, being seen by a clinician or a doctor and things like that, that, you know, adding therapy can be really helpful. So targeting some of those underlying issues that might be triggering, you know, binge eating or restriction, things like that. But I thought it was really interesting that a lot of these overlapping factors are also things that we target in treatment. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's so tricky because I know that there are a lot of clinicians out there in the field who show sort of holes in research that are trying to prove that weight loss is effective for some metabolic diseases or injuries or things like that, which is really hard to do. It's like sort of like swimming upstream because the general population has published so much research on, again, like whether it's accurate or whatever word you want to use or not um, is questionable, but it is swimming upstream in trying to prove the opposite is true. But even some of the things that I've picked up is the idea of weight loss well, is it intentional weight loss or is it unintentional weight loss? And that's a very big thing. And did it happen alongside changing their diet in a very specific way or did it happen in a different specific way? And what happened with their mental health and what happened with so many other things? And so there's just sort of like, okay, now we can poke holes. So there's like a reasonable doubt sort of thing, but is that enough to disprove it? I don't know. Yeah. And another big thing that comes up is what we call self-directed versus like clinician directed. So when you're on your own and not having that oversight from clinicians, that's when we see a lot bigger risk for eating disorders. Um, And I'm not sure if some of that is not having the accountability or like not having that oversight where somebody can step in and be like, hey, this is, (laughs) this has gone too far. Or if it's just the mindset of people who choose to engage in these behaviors on their own versus with a clinician. Although that's problematic too, if we're having clinicians tell everybody that they need to lose weight. So kind of a balance there between, you know, people seeking it out because it would be beneficial for them versus telling everybody who is at a certain weight that they need to lose weight. Yeah. Well, I guess if there's one thing that we can take away from this conversation or the one thing that I'm sure we both hope to take away from this conversation is at the very least this one thing that if somebody says research shows that instead of just taking their word for it, it's, well, which research can you show me? Can I read it? And even if you don't read it, but just a little bit of skepticism 
is going to go a long way. Now, I'm not telling people to become like me and become just like a skeptic all over because it's probably not a great thing to do that either. But there is a certain amount of critical thinking that we really have to adopt when we talk about research because like we have learned, we, we can throw it out in any way that we feel like it. And that, again, becomes so dangerous. Yeah, and I think there's also a difference between research like we're talking about and I want to do research as in I want to look at 40 websites. <laughs> you know, so people say I want to I want to do, Very different I want to do my own research. <laughs> yeah. And so making sure that if we're doing our research online and looking at different papers that we're looking at, like we said, having that skepticism, looking at our sources and knowing that that kind of research we're not controlling for factors the way that like clinical research is doing. Yeah. So can you walk us through what an actual research study looks like from the inside? So the one that comes to mind, I know NIDA, the National Eating Disorder Awareness or Association is having their NIDA Awareness Week in February and online they have a screener. So for people who are concerned that they, they or somebody close to them has an eating disorder, they have this really awesome screening tool, which people can definitely check out. But that information goes to our lab, which is super cool that we get access to that information. And so Wait, let me pause you for a second. This screening tool uh is just like a whole bunch of questions that you either ask yourself or ask yourself about somebody else that either points to this person is like potentially struggling with an eating disorder or maybe bordering on the line. Okay. Yeah. So I think it won't tell you like what disorder, but it says like you're at high risk. You should definitely talk to somebody. You may be at risk consider talking to somebody or we don't see any risk at this point. And it's just just one tool, but I think it's good to have tools that people can use for that. Yeah. So it, the information goes to your lab and then what happens? I have, I have envisioned like lab with the goggles and the beakers <laughs> and <laughs> that doesn't sound like this. <laughs> no, um, with COVID, we're all working from home. So we have a remote lab. So even before that, you know, we had to sit down with Nita and be like, okay, what sorts of questions do we want to ask? Because we could ask anything. And how do we want to ask these questions? You know, do we want them open-ended where people can write anything, but then it's hard to compare? Do we want things to be scale one to five? Yes or no? So that happens even before. But then once we get the data, then we have hypotheses set up. So what sorts of things do we expect to see? And that makes sure that we're not, you know, looking around until we find something significant and and then publish it, which causes errors. And we don't have to go into that, but we have hypotheses set up where we want to look at associations with things, you know, like are people getting treatment after taking the screener? Are what sorts of people are more distressed? Things like that, really endless questions. And then with that, we will run analyses to make sure you know, we see these differences, but are they big enough to be what we call statistically significant, where it's more than chance likely that we got this difference? Meaning the the difference is so significant that there's probably a correlation at the very least. Yep. That it can't be explained just by chance. So it's not just that out of all the people, there's like one more person on this list than the other list. And therefore, oh, well, it's it's more effective. There's something a little bit more significant to it. Exactly. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And so once we find those differences, then the next step is to write a paper. So we explain kind of the rationale for our hypotheses and the results that we found. And then that interpretation section where we kind of talk about what we think this means. And once we have that, we submit to a journal where our peers will look at it and give us feedback. 
and hopefully eventually we publish it so that other people can see what we found and build off of that for their research studies. So like what happens then? Like what, how do they take that information or I'm sure based on some of the research that I've read, it's like based on this and then we sort of start from there. So what happens then? What potentially could happen then? Yeah. So a lot of times people look at the limitations. So um, was there a group that we didn't look at? Was there a measure that we think could explain these differences that we didn't look at? So people can do studies from there. People can do those meta-analyses like we were talking about or looking at like, okay, this one study found this, but do other studies find the same thing? We're going in different directions. Like, okay, we found this in, let's say, college populations. Is it the same in older adults or in women versus men? So really thinking about ways that we can kind of look at other contexts to see if this information generalizes and are there other explanations for the information. Well, I mean, I really commend you because that sounds extremely tedious to me. (laughs) I think it's important to have research that you're really passionate about. And for me to have something that's really applicable, like the fact that we're informing treatments, that's really going to help people. It's what I I love the most about it. Yeah. Oh, well, maybe talk about, I think there's like another research that you're involved in or were involved in that also can sort of be applicable. So maybe can you share that too? Yeah. So um, the other main research project that I'm working on is a mobile treatment app. So like one that you'll get on your smartphone and it's for anorexia nervosa, and especially people who've just been released from inpatient. So we know when people in inpatient, they're kind of monitored 24-7, and then you get released and you're kind of on your own. And probably unsurprisingly, we see a lot of relapse. And so we kind of want to bridge that gap and kind of help people transition back and have some support through this app. And it's guided self-help CBT. So what that means is that it's self-help. So you're going through modules on your own and going through materials, but there's a coach there to guide you and to check in and to kind of be like a therapist, but as you need it. And it's CBT based. So that's the lens of the modules. But our goal is to initially we're doing what we call feasibility and acceptability. So asking stakeholders, people with lived experience, you know, NIDA, ANAD, other organizations, is, do you like this? Like, is this, is this something that you would, you think um, is a good uh, intervention? Because we really want it to be something that people with lived experience actually think is a good intervention, which is actually not always done in research, which is kind of crazy, but. Yeah. Oversight. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So once we get the data on feasibility and acceptability? Is it something that people actually think is is going to be a good intervention? Then we move into what we call a randomized control trial, where we have groups of people and they're randomized to one of two conditions. And the randomization helps us account for any differences that might be between the groups. And some people are going to get a social support type of We're not quite sure what exactly that's (laughs) going to look like, but basically getting some kind of social support from other users versus not getting that social support. And we're going to see if having that support increases adherence. So are people using it it more and do they have better outcomes? Because we know that social support is really important and it's also really hard to get people to have that support. So that's something that we're going to be looking at. 
Yeah, well, that's definitely important. I mean, if there's anything that's going to help with when somebody gets released from treatment and goes right back into a relapse, that would be greatly appreciated by us all. So here's to hoping. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for sharing your expertise, your time, and for helping us understand this more. I mean, I hope that we at least started to unpack some of this stuff so that people can think a little bit more critically. Before I let you go, can you share with our listeners where they can find you? Yeah, so I have a website. It's just my name, mollyfennig.com. I have written a couple books. Um, I try to help no, promote. No, no sweat, just like a couple books. Yeah, <laughs> just a couple. <laughs> and the most recent one is on a male wrestler with an eating disorder and just trying to break the stigma on that and just kind of help people understand kind of, I think we know a lot about statistics of how eating disorders occur, but maybe not like what it feels like to have one. So that was kind of my goal with that, but that's available on my website or through Amazon. It's now out on audiobook, which is super exciting and so cool. But yeah, so if you, on my website, I think I have like a coupon for a couple of dollars off of that. And so definitely check it out. And I'm also on Twitter at Molly Fennig. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. If you enjoyed today's episode and you know someone who may as well, please share it. Not only does it help us reach more people, it really makes my day to know that this show is making a difference. All right. Talk next time.